So it's a pleasure to welcome Emma to the sessional meeting. Emma is a specialist media law attorney at Weber Wenzel and holds an LLB degree with distinction from the University of Wits and an LLM degree with distinction in IT, media and communications law from the London School of Economics. One of Emma's areas of expertise is all aspects of social media, including Facebook, Twitter and blogging. So yeah, thanks Emma. We're looking forward to what you've uh, got uh, here for us. Thank thanks you. a lot. Thanks very much. Hello everybody. It's very nice to be here. I can tell you this is definitely the most beautiful room I've ever presented in. Um, and certainly beats the um, old mutual building in Santon, which is where we were yesterday giving this uh, same presentation. Although um, I take a very interactive approach, so feel free to ask any questions at any stage. And yesterday, the tone of the discussion was totally different to what I anticipated, but I think um, very useful. So, I mean, I suppose when I first was asked to uh, talk to the actuaries, I was a little bit confused about which aspect in particular I was going to address because I spend a lot of my time lecturing. I go around uh, a lot of the schools. I spend a lot of time speaking about social media to journalists, um, to the sort of traditional publishers, anybody who has to engage with social media on a daily basis. So the digital marketers and um, those sort of people. So the actuaries are quite, um, quite an unusual bunch, actually, for me to talk to. But the truth is that social media has infiltrated our lives enormously. Every single person is affected in some way by social media. It's changed the way we communicate with each other. We don't um, go home and sort of sit around a dining room table and tell each other about our days anymore. We tweet it. We, uh, I suppose a lot of people treat social media like a diary. And the truth is that it's a very public forum. So people are getting into trouble all the time. People are going to jail for what they tweet. Uh, people are costing their companies millions because they've disclosed confidential information on some kind of social media platform. And um, people are losing their jobs. And this is happening almost on a daily basis. People are being sued for defamation. People are being sued for infringement of privacy, copyright infringement. So it's really just to create an awareness that whatever you say online you need to consider the legal implications and your contractual implications and any confidentiality um, obligations that may be imposed upon you. So I've kind of sort of structured it that I've I'm going to introduce you quickly to social media and what it is. Then I'm going to talk to you about actuaries and how you specifically can engage with social media. And then uh, the sort of the professional personal divide, which is, I suppose, the biggest thing that we, we, we um, struggle with on social media because it feels, it looks and feels like a personal forum, but actually it's very public. So uh, we start with my favorite quote about social networking. It's not that we, it's a, it, we don't have a choice in whether we do social media. The question is how well we do it. And social media is really the term we give to any forum or any platform or any website that engages conversations over the internet. So it includes Facebook and Twitter and blogging, your company websites, uh, Instagram, it includes Tumblr, all those sort of things. So it's all part of the Web 2.0 environment. And Web 2.0 is anything that um, is created by the users of the internet. You know, we, we, don't, we, we don't really pay for content anymore because the content is free because you and I are giving it. So anything that um, includes any user-generated content, UGC, uh, is considered social media. Okay, so the biggest is probably Facebook. It was founded in 2004. It has over, an, over a billion active monthly users. It's generally perceived as a personal social network, but you're seeing more and more companies having Facebook profiles and uh, people engaging with Facebook for 
uh, campaigns for um, matters of public interest and for marketing purposes. So in South Africa, we're probably in about 6 million. My figures are slightly outdated. Um, and roughly sort of half, half male to female. And then Twitter. And um, I always sort of try and work out, uh, have a look to see what sort of generation audience I have. Anyone under the age of 40 knows what Twitter is, and anyone over the age of 60 doesn't, and then there's a sort of a gap in between. But um, Twitter enables you to send your subscribers or followers messages of up to 140 letters or spaces, which is the length of the sentence. Um, users of Twitter can be followed by other Twitter users who find that user interesting or informative. And Twitter users often enter into conversations or dialogues with other users. It's a very interactive forum. I always say Facebook is for your friends, and Twitter is for the people you want to be your friends. Um, each registered user has to adopt a unique username, which is called a Twitter handle. Now, the Twitter handle can be a totally fabricated name. It can be totally anonymous. It can be the name of your company. And alongside that is a picture, and we use the term avatar to describe the Twitter picture. LinkedIn, probably slightly more relevant for, for you lot because it's more of a professional network. It styles itself as the world's largest professional network. It's got 175 million members in 200 countries. I don't really see the benefit of LinkedIn except perhaps for recruiting purposes and for uh, networking on a very professional level, but even then I don't particularly find it useful. I find it irritating that they send me emails all day. Um, but it's a focus on business. And the other, the other great thing about LinkedIn is that it allows you to really look after your personal reputation because it's always very high ranking in Google search results. So if you Google my name and I'm on LinkedIn, it'll be the first, second or third result always because it's, it's, it has that profile on the internet. Um, Twitter has half a billion registered profiles. It has 100 million active users. 50% of the 100 million users log in every day. And 15% of adult internet users were using Twitter in February 2012. I couldn't get updated statistics for that. I just asked an agency to send them to me. But I think that um, just in the last week, uh, it's probably doubled in South Africa just because of the Oscar Pistorius case. Um, I'm not sure if anybody has better suggestions about which actuaries to follow and uh, who is useful and influential in the market. But I did a quick search on, the, on Twitter for actuaries, and I came across the Actuary magazine, which is the um, official magazine for the UK actuarial profession. It's got a link there in the bio to uh, the website. And they tweet really interesting things, particularly links to their articles um, that appear in the magazine. Then that's the um, American Ac Academy of Actuaries. Also tweet lots of stats, uh, quite interesting developments in the profession. It's quite fun. I find Twitter very useful for um, keeping up to date with developments in my particular field. So I can follow media lawyers from around the world and they're tweeting about the social media cases that are going on or the defamation cases, the privacy cases. And it really is just a mechanism for me to keep totally up to date with very little effort because it just lands up in my timeline. I don't even have to actively go out and look for it. Actuary Jobs is quite interesting. They just tweet jobs available for actuaries. And then this is the only one that I know of, uh, that all that I follow, the only um, actuary that I follow, Greg Whitaker, actuary with interest in demographics, linked to his company website. And he tweets also lots of statistics and strictly professional profile, doesn't ever tweet any personal stuff or any social stuff, just tweets stuff about being an actuary. Okay, so this, this slide is probably why I'm here. Social media law basics. The main problem we see on social media from a legal perspective is what I term the cyberspace fallacy. And that is the idea that when you go online, you enter a different jurisdiction. That somehow as you log in, you enter a different country where the rules in South Africa no longer apply to you. 
And quite the converse is true, because everything you do online is treated in exactly the same way as comments you make on the television or on radio or in the newspaper. It's even more of a public forum than those other traditional mechanisms. It's a permanent record. And I think the facelessness of the internet gives people a false sense that they are anonymous, that they are able to do what they like. I mean, I see it in my own, with my own friends on Facebook. I sometimes see on their status updates things that they would never say if it was just the two of us in a room. But for some reason, they're happy to say it on a status. And it's almost this idea, as I said earlier, of treating Facebook or, or Twitter like a diary, you know, say, saying things that you think are just sort of disappearing into the abyss, but actually there's this permanent record. People, as I say, are getting into so much trouble about it. But the cyberspace fallacy is probably the biggest problem that we see. The truth is anything that would affect your conduct in the real world affects your conduct online. So if you have a code of conduct in the workplace, it would apply equally online. If you have contractual obligations with some of your clients, if you have particular confidentiality obligations because of matters you're working on, those apply even more so in social media than in the workplace because, of it's, because it is so public in nature. So it's a fairly obvious point, but for some reason, there is this moment where people sort of disappear into another world and think that they are no longer in the real world. The chain of publication relates to, in particular, defamation matters, but really any, any kind of legal action which is affected by publication. So traditionally, any single person in the chain of publication could be sued, for example, for defamatory content. And so... In the old days, before we had the internet, it would be the writer of an, a newspaper article, the editor who allowed the article to be published, the owners of the newspaper, the printing press, the guy who drives the van, which has the newspapers in the back to the corner shop, the guy who sells your newspaper on the side of the road. You can sue any single one of those people in the publication chain because they are responsible for publication. Defamation, their three requirements. That's to be publication of defamatory material to a third party. So, well, the publication to a third party of defamatory material, I must refer to the person who's being defamed. So I could sue any of those people in the publication chain. Now, if I sued the man who sold me my newspaper on the, side of, on the corner of the street, well, firstly, he doesn't have any money, so I'd probably be very unsuccessful. But secondly, and probably more importantly, is that he's not aware of the content inside the newspaper. So he lacks the intention to defame. He has the defense of innocent dissemination. So anybody who isn't necessarily aware of the content that they are publishing has this defense of innocent dissemination. So if we translate that into the online world, every single person in the publication chain, in internet publications, you can also see is also responsible for the publication, not just in defamation, but for all illegal material. And the one sort of the, the more sort of secondary publishers can also benefit from this defense of, of, of um, innocent dissemination. So that would be your ISPs, for example, your internet service providers. It would be sometimes your website hosts, so or the website owners like Facebook. They wouldn't necessarily be aware of all the content that they host. So Section 77 of the Electronic Communications and Transactions Act provides for a notice and takedown request. And if you're ever affected by uh, content online, often the best way of getting it removed, because of the facelessness of the internet, the anonymity, sometimes you have to throw a lot of money at the problem to try and find out who's behind content is to do the Section 77 notice and takedown to one of the secondary publishers, so either the ISP or the website host. Now, if I see content, for example, on, you know, uh, underneath a newspaper article about me, and the ISP that hosts that content is a member of ISPA, the Internet Services, uh, Service Providers Association, 
I can send them a Section 77 notice saying, look, you're hosting illegal content, whether, say, child sexual abuse Im images. We don't call it child pornography anymore. On this URL, okay, you, you host hundreds of millions of pages. You don't know about its content, but we're telling you about it now. And if you don't remove it, then we're going to sue you. And then if they don't do anything about it, then they'll be sued themselves. And the ISPs really don't have an appetite to spend a lot of money on legal fees. And often they will just remove it immediately without even considering its content. So, Sorry, what kind of timescale is normal, is reasonable for them it to... Depends how, it depends how awful the content is. So if it's a sort of vaguely defamatory, uh, uh, you know, like a, um, a satirical cartoon, for example, that I see and I'm upset about, I could send it and say I'd like it removed within three days. Sometimes if I see really sort of child pornography or something, I'd say on, on receipt and have a receipt, a read receipt on the email. And as soon as they've received it, they must remove it. Mostly they reply straight away saying we're considering it, we're considering it and we'll be back to you in 24 hours. But the, it's a really, really successful mechanism. The problem is when the ISP is based abroad, particularly in the States, because then you just have such a jurisdictional problem. And that's the next part of um, the next, the next uh, point in my slide is jurisdiction, is that cyberspace transcends all these legal jurisdictions. So in, for publication purposes, material is published where it's viewed. And the, the two cases there were the, the Dow Jones versus the Gutner case, where um, the newspaper was published in hard copy in the States, and an online version was available. And this guy was a subscriber to the online version in Australia. And he was he sued the company in Australia on the basis that that was where he had read the material. And so it had been published there for legal purposes. In South Africa, we had the Casino Enterprises case, which was such a fun case. It was the Pig's Peak uh, Casino case. So Pig's Peak was advertising their heads off. They're based in Swaziland. Casino. In South Africa, internet gambling was illegal. And they were saying, well, the, internet, the gambling doesn't happen in South Africa. The gambling happens in Swaziland. It just so happens that all the players are based all over South Africa. You know, the bank accounts were in Swaziland. The, uh, the actual mechanism where the risk took place was in Swaziland. But people were, I mean, you had to, you had to be told about whether or not you won in South Africa. And the judge agreed there that the material is published where it is viewed. So I think that uh, that would translate to any sort of defamation case as well, defamation, privacy, any of those sort of cases. Um, the, the converse is also true, is that if I tweet something here from this room and it's sufficiently objectionable that somebody in London is particularly aggrieved about it, I could be sued there. And that's happening more and more because there's, you know, there are no boundaries, there are no borders in cyberspace. And if I publish something and it's access accessible around the world, I could be subject to 600 different legal jurisdictions. So it's really a question of make it, creating awareness and making sure people are very conscious about what they say, because as soon as something has been tweeted, it can't be untweeted. I, there was a case in Capitol Hill last week where somebody was um, dismissed. They tweeted something, and I didn't think it was even that bad. It was about a girl band, I think, and uh, deleted it after 14 seconds when you know, his conscience got the better of him fired immediately that was that was sufficient as soon as it's as soon as it's out there it's out there and even if you delete it if it's been retweeted once or if it's in, it's embedded in a cache or something then then you've got problems um so, when you talk about caches with the the, the notice and take down yeah board, so if, if google's whatever mm -hmm. the search bots or whatever have have cached the website yeah. Even if you've taken it down as an ISP, do you then yeah. have to get hold of Google to say, please flush your cache? Okay, well, Google caches everything, for usually for a period of about two weeks. It's normally available. If you click on it, 
then you get taken to the website, the content won't be there. There is a mechanism within Google where you can notify them. So this I, I do myself if my client has had some, successfully had something removed, then I, as a matter of course, go to Google. And there's, um, there's, a, there's an automated system. It's always impossible to get hold of anybody at Google. Just never ever think that you will find an animate person who works at Google because it's impossible. But one of the things that they are good at is if that content no longer exists, so you just you put in the thing and then you sort of paste the URL in saying, look, that content doesn't exist anymore. Please remove it from the cache. And they do it almost immediately. Yeah. But Google is a, Google is a huge problem. I mean, with this, this question that you've raised is what I was saying earlier about the chain of publication. Google clearly are publishers, clearly. But for some reason, and it's just, uh, I mean, it's completely incomprehensible to me, but for some reason, most jurisdictions, jurisdictions in the world um, which have had to grapple with this issue so far have found Google to be a mere content aggregator and not a publisher. And they haven't held them responsible for the content they host. A case came out this morning in England for the first time ever holding them accountable for the search terms that they find. I hear that they're appealing immediately and Google's throwing a lot of money at the problem. So we'll see what happens, but it's, it's such a huge problem. I mean, I'm working on a case at the moment where a young girl was, she's absolutely divine, studied at UCT from, a, from school in Joburg, went to UCT, came back, she just started her first job in Santon. And she'd been dating this guy for about six months, broke up with him, and eight months later, Googled herself, and the first to 300th results that she found was a porn video, well, it was a video of her having sex with this guy. She had no idea that it had been taken. Uh, he had filmed it in such a way that his head was out of it. He put her first name, her surname, and the company that she works for as tags on this video and just put it on one porn sharing website. It was everywhere. So we were quite successful in getting the actual video disabled on almost all of those sites. But it still appeared in all the Google things. And now she's applying to go and study in London. She wants scholarships and things. And you Google her name. And this is what comes up in Google. And, you know, it's very unlikely that any of these possible scholarship funders are going to go to particular porn sites and Google her name. I mean, search her name. You see, it's become such a generic term. Search her name and find those results. But, of course, they will Google her. And, you know, it's, it's, if somebody comes to me, when I meet somebody, I Google them. I Facebook stalk them. You know, I see if they've got a Twitter presence. It's just the way it happens these days. You know, that is how... Sorry? Don't you have safe search on? <laughs> <laughs> not, in, not in media law, not in my line of work. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's the problem. And it's also, I mean, we were chatting just before we started the talk about pre-hiring, pre-screening people. So you get a CV from someone, the first thing you do is check to see what sort of, what sort of person they are, what you can tell about them from social media. And that's important. And I think it's... it's um, absolutely allowed and people must realize that once you put something out there you can't have a reasonable expectation of privacy over that content because if it's publicly available to your potential employer it's publicly available to the, that employer's clients and customers and you know people must look after their reputations um, and then the multiple publication rule is mostly applicable to the journalists who are publishing controversial content but also to everybody because in South Africa, the period of prescription is three years. So from the date the newspaper is published, I have three years to sue. The problem with the internet is that it's constant publication from the second you put it on until the second you remove it. And so the, the day it was last accessible online is the date uh, where prescription starts running. So it basically means nothing ever prescribes. I can be sued in 10 years' time or 20 years' time about something that I tweet today. So it's just something to bear in mind. It has become a massive issue because people are generally, you know, very quick to act when there's uh, an awful content about them online. But it is something to bear in mind. So we've talked about some of the bad things about social media, but there are great benefits as well. Firstly, for profile, engaging 
um, in social media can be used to raise the profile and general awareness of yourself and your practice. Promoting yourself as an expert or thought leader in your respective area of expertise. Engaging with clients. I think that as more and more people use social media, and really, I mean, it's almost everybody now. We're almost at saturation point, certainly probably amongst your clients. There's a corresponding expectation, I think, that you will be there as well. And um, it lets you speak directly to your clients. And then, as I was saying earlier, it, it allows you to keep up to date with developments in your field. Yeah. The thing about uh, uh, improving your profile. Yeah. Um, on LinkedIn, as far as I know, there's a facility where somebody else can say that you're an expert in something. Yeah, they, yeah. they can endorse your What's qualifications. What's the relevance of that? Well, it's just the way they do it. I mean, it's no particular relevance, but it just allows... Somebody else can't say that you played it. What do you mean? Well, if you claim that you're an expert at whatever, yeah. uh, um, or because of that endorsement, appears that you're claiming it, and if you happen to say something to somebody and they act on it, yeah. and in the meantime you actually made it as a general comment, yeah. and not as advice. Mm. Uh, I think to be safe, uh, um, I, I like the caveat in your Twitter bio, that nothing should be construed as expert advice, or nothing should be, no advice should be relied upon. Yeah, well, in, I mean, the problem with Link, with Link, it's that I endorse you, so that's not a problem. I mean, I, I can just, because it's a separate account endorsing each other. Um, but I think that, and I, w I was just thinking about this yesterday, in terms of um, if, if I hold myself out as an expert, often that comes with concomitant increased liability. Certainly in the old cases, sort of the sale cases, if I held myself out as an expert in the course of the contract, uh, the, the contractual arrangement, um, then I would be held liable, for example, latent defects, which I wouldn't be if I didn't hold myself out as an expert. The Consumer Protection Act has also brought in with it a whole lot more liability if you hold yourself out as, a, as an expert. But you have to have that consumer relationship, which I don't think you have in the context of just following each other on Twitter or being uh, connections on LinkedIn. Yeah. I think the, the issue here is you've now given two addresses to actuaries. Someone connects with you on LinkedIn and endorses you as an actuarial expert mm -hmm. without giving the caveat that it's actuarial expert with regard to social media. Yeah. You're then at a bride, you're talking to someone and you say, you know, for my pension I'm currently saving with X company. They look at you on LinkedIn and says, oh, you're an actuarial expert go and act on the advice. Yeah. And, and I think the concern is, if someone endorses you, can you control what they've endorsed you as? Um, you can certainly. You can certainly uh, remove any endorsements or you can disable the endorsement function. But I, don't, I think that the, the link is too remote for the causation. You know, if I meet you at a bra and then I see that and somebody's endorsed you, I think it would be very, very difficult to prove. But also you have to have a contract with that person before they can rely on the advice and, and hold you liable for it. So I think... And, and as a profession, we, yeah. we are told that we're operating under that obligation. If someone knows that you're yeah. an actuary, whatever you say will yeah. be construed as being given as, as professional advice. advice, unless you've gone out of your way to say, this is not given in my capacity as an actuary at all. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one because you can say it, and it won't make any difference later. I mean, I've got at the end of my slides, nothing in this presentation should be construed as legal advice. Well, then what the hell am I doing here? You know, like, <laughs> um, 
it helps. It helps, and I think the disclaimers help. You'll see on Greg's uh, profile, he's got a, at the bottom tweets not to be construed as expert opinion or advice. It can't hurt, but. Um, the dash CA is standing for cover my ads. Yes, exactly. But um, it, it's not something that keeps me up at night. Um, okay, so scale, there's lack of geographical bar barriers. You reach a far wider audience than would otherwise be achievable via other traditional forms of communication. For example, if you wrote an article in your uh, actuarial society magazine and it went out to this very confined group um, compared to if you put the article up on a blog and tweeted a link to it. So, so there are those benefits. Obviously, the marketing and advertising, the, the pure scale of social media in South Africa speaks for itself. And then the cost is relatively cheap to set up. Um, that's not to say it's free because I know that actuaries like lawyers charge by the hour, so you spend a bit of time doing it, but it, I mean, the, the infrastructure itself is free. So, so if we move now from the benefits to the risks, the great thing about social media is it gives everyone a voice. The bad thing about social media is it gives everyone a voice. And I can tell you that my Twitter timeline in the last week has been an absolutely horrific place to be. It has been so ugly. And it's all been about the Oscar Pistorius thing. And you just have these comments that people make that, that you, just, you just can't believe anybody would ever say it. And so we started talking about the cyberspace fall fallacy earlier. But the truth is that no special laws or rules um, apply to social media. The same obligations and principles that actuaries adhere to or apply to in their conduct in the online environment, confidentiality, et cetera, I mean, I mean, in the offline environment, apply to the conduct in the online environment, and treat it in exactly the same way as comments made in any other public forum. I like to call it the billboard test. If you wouldn't be prepared to have your face on a massive billboard with your name on it and your comment that you've tweeted then, and put that in a very public place, then I certainly wouldn't be tweeting it. The reputational risks are enormous. And then what is tweeted cannot be um, untweeted. The other thing I should perhaps mention is that if you retweet something, then you also become responsible for that content. Because as I was saying, the chain of publication, my followers wouldn't be able to see that tweet unless I retweeted it. So it's happening a lot. And I guess the best example of that is the Lord McAlpine case. I don't know if any of you followed it, but the BBC did a documentary, prepared a documentary, and it was broadcast. And it referred to a senior Tory MP and accused this person, who they didn't name, of being involved in child sexual abuse allegations. And somebody tweeted Lord McAlpine's name, and it was retweeted. And they're suing 10,000 people at the moment. Every single person who retweeted that name, they're suing. And they've come up with this amazing strategy that if they've got less than 500 tweeters and they apologize and they delete it and they pay five pounds to a charity, then they won't go after them. And they've got this back room of lawyers who I feel really, really sorry for, who are trying to get to terms with all these things. They've got the ITV to pay them 885,000 pounds. Uh, I mean the BBC has paid 250,000 pounds plus all their legal costs. Sally Burko, the wife of the speaker, uh, is engaged in very serious litigation around it. She's refusing to apologize. So it's that kind of thing. People really think that there's safety in numbers and that if we all retweet it, it's going to be fine. And I think what this Lord McAlpine example is showing is that that's not necessarily the case. I know some people say retweets are sort of not constitute endorsement, that sort of thing. I suppose it doesn't really. I mean, you see sometimes people will retweet a troll. Somebody's retweeted them something really terrible. A Reedy Dereka, a Reedy Chlubby did it this week. Somebody said, told a really racist, horrible joke. And she retweeted it. And she got under a lot of, uh, I mean, she got a lot of flack for it. But none of her followers would have seen it. 
had she not retweeted it. So although she didn't necessarily endorse it, she was still responsible for its publication. So I suppose you'd have to look at it in its own factual um, circumstance. But if you're putting a name out there, which wouldn't normally have been there, uh, then it's a problem. Somebody like a journalist who retweets something may benefit from some kind of neutral reportage defense if they explain beforehand, then tweet it, and then explain afterwards why they've done it. Maybe. But um, if I retweeted something that I thought was horrific, then I'm just as responsible for the publication as the original person. It's exactly, I suppose the analogy is um, the editor of a newspaper. I I'm the editor of the newspaper, I receive a letter, I look at it, I don't agree with it, but I put it in my newspaper. I'm responsible for its publication. There's a prior editorial control. So the legal considerations, and I spend days with my journalists teaching about each of, each of these subtopics, but just to sort of give you general awareness, and I'm happy to take any questions on them, it's defamation, privacy, hate speech. Hate speech is becoming a very, very big one for social media. You see in cases being laid at the Equality Court almost daily about racist comments in particular. Criminal inuria is like a criminal kind of defamation. It's where somebody infringes your dignity and it's not a trifling nature. It's not uncommon for people to land up in jail for committing the crime of criminal inuria. Contempt of court. We saw that last week with the Oscar Pistorius photograph where he was crying. That photograph was in contempt of the court order because they said no photographs during court proceedings. It was apparently taken from outside the courtroom, but every single person who retweeted that would have been in contempt of court. Luckily, the magistrate was pretty chilled with us. Um, confidentiality obligations. State secrets. That's going to become obviously more more of a big deal with um, the secrecy bill, not that we don't have enough problems with the um, Key Points Act, intellectual property, and then <laughs> the actuary's code, which I'll speak about in a, bit, in a moment. Any questions about any of those? No. Okay, so we've had two cases that have gone to the High Court in South Africa um, that have uh, concerned Facebook. The first was this. It was in May last year, and it was handed down by Judge Cathy Satchwell. It was the Dutch Reformed Church case, and the facts were quite fun. There was there's a big property just next to the court in Joburg in town, and there was a dispute between these two churches. The building was owned by the Dutch Reformed Church, and they'd been renting it out for years to the Glory Divine World Ministries. Then the church decided that they wanted to sell the building, offered it to Glory Divine, they made a poultry offer, they turned it down, and they sold it to um, an Islamic academy, which infuriated Glory Divine no end. So... They decided to lobby against the decision by contacting the media and also by using a Facebook page. So I'm sure you've seen those campaign Facebook pages where people just use it to, uh, you know, campaign for whatever cause they believe in. In this case, it was really a forum for hate speech. They were writing horrific things on this on this um, Facebook profile page. Yeah, the Islamic stuff. Uh, no, yeah, lots of anti-Islamic stuff, a lot, a lot. And a lot of stuff against the Dutch Reformed Church as well encouraging the members of Glory Divine to go on there and have their, have their say. It was really quite a shocker. Facebook, they tried to get it removed via Facebook, which is always the best way to do it because sometimes Facebook reacts. Although I can tell you, Facebook never, ever reacts unless you can show that there's some kind of intellectual property infringement. So um, if I can show that they're using my logo, for some reason that's when they do react. Sometimes I even put the company logo up there and then I go to Facebook and be like, ah, oh, they're using my logo, quickly remove the page um, because it's the only time they respond. They're not interested in defamation. They're not interested in infringements of privacy. They will respond to some hate speech, particularly if you can show that a, a page has the N-word. And they will respond to um, child sexual um, abuse images. Beyond that, they are just totally non-responsive. And it's very difficult because the ISPs are based in the States. The First Amendment applies. They're like free speech, free speech, rah-rah. And you can never, ever get anything removed. And it's a total nightmare. So um, they... 
didn't know that it was this Ryan pseudonym particularly, but I think the judge said something like it, it looks like a duck, duck and it cracks like a duck. It was quite obvious that this guy was behind it, although we didn't have abs- they didn't have absolute proof. And Judge Satchel made some very interesting findings. What, the crux of what she said was that if you create a Facebook page, you're responsible for all the content that appears on that page, regardless of whether you generated that content or not. So she said that um, because the creator of a Facebook page is capable of regulating access to the page and censoring the postings placed on the page, i.e. deleting it, um, she said she used the analogy of an editor of a newspaper. She said, you look at the post, decide it's fine, and leave it there. Now, I think that's wrong because there's actually no prior editorial uh, control. At best, you can find out about it afterwards and delete it. The analogy that she used was um, a green felt board, and she said that by creating a page, you get this board and you allow members of the public to come and stick their scrappy pieces of paper on the green felt board. And by creating the Facebook page, you put that board in a public place. You're responsible for it, you're responsible for the content that you host. And the result of this is actually very, very onerous, particularly for company website pages. So I'm thinking of the Carte Blanche website now. If um, you know, user, uh, viewers upset about something that they've watched and, you know, often carte blanche viewers are, they, they, they take to Facebook and they rant and they rave and they rage and they, it's always about race and it's always about sexism and, you know, and then there's a duty on us to make sure that everything on there is legally sound because we're now responsible for it. It's the same reason that we had to shut down the Wilworths Facebook page last year after the controversy surrounding the employment hiring, um, the BEE policies. So, <coughs> that's quite problematic and if any of you have company um, websites it's worth noting because it can be very dangerous I think it probably can be mitigated almost completely by making sure that you delete anything um, as soon as somebody asks you to delete it or if it comes to your attention but there's also a question about how long is too long you know if I go home at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon I've never gone home at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon but it would be nice and then come back on a Monday and somebody's put something up there on a Friday night and I haven't checked the page the whole weekend, then that can also be problematic because that exposure um, is really, is really my, my problem. So a lot, of, a lot of the companies that I work with, we disable the comments when we go home at night and then enable them again the next morning. It's really, it's really a bit of a game changer, this case. Even more interesting was the case of H versus W, which was handed down by Judge Willis two weeks ago. What happened there was that um, they, they weren't named because there were some minor children and it was sort of vaguely involved in divorce proceedings. And you can't identify parties to divorce unless they are Tokyo Sequali. And um, so Judge Willis was asked to grant an interdict against a Facebook user who had posted a comment about her ex-best friend. So H and W were best friends and H was getting divorced from his wife. And the wife moved in with W with the two children, two little girls. And on her version, she fed them and clothed them and looked after them. And this guy went on a bender for a few months. And I think there was even a, a line in the judgment which said something like, uh, it is common cause that the applicant enjoyed his social intercourse lubricated with alcohol, which I think is probably my favorite line in any judgment ever. But um, he, he really went wild. So she took to Facebook and said, she made a posting and entitled it Open Letter to H. And then said, I don't know if it's the drugs or the, testo- or the steroids or the church or the alcohol, but I see the desperate faces of your little girls every day. And really just sort of styled him as a horribly neglectful father and who, who was sort of really involved in substance abuse and had, um, had neglected his children as a result. 
So this was on the 27th of February last year. The day afterwards, his, his attorneys wrote a letter to her saying, please remove it. She said no. It went through the course of the courts. It wasn't brought on an urgent basis. I think that's probably the main reason why I think the remedy is totally ineffective. And I was told yesterday that it's being appealed to the Supreme Court of Appeal. But because, I mean, if anyone's on Facebook, you'll understand that if something I wrote a year ago is totally irrelevant to what people see today. And they brought this application. And the great thing about this judgment is that the judge pretty much published a Facebook for dummies. He went through in detail exactly how Facebook works. And I mean, we laugh, but it's so important because so many of the judges are these old guys who have never been on social media and they don't know how Facebook works. So if you go to them on an urgent basis and you have to say to them, well, this is what's happened, they won't have a clue as to how to deal with it legally because they don't know how the technology works. So I'm indebted to Judge Willis for this because whatever happens in the future, whenever we're involved in Facebook cases, we can just direct them to this case and they can work out how uh, Facebook works. But, but the judge really said two important things. He granted the interdict. He said that, he, uh, that um, the user had to delete the post, which I believe she hasn't, uh, within 30 days. Otherwise, she would go to jail. And um, he said two very important things. The first is that you, it's best to act against the wrongdoers themselves, not against Facebook, because one of the respondents' defenses was, I think that it's absolutely fine. If he wants it removed, he must go to Facebook. Judge Willis correctly said, I don't think that that would have any effect whatsoever. Although I think they probably should have provided proof to the court that they had exhausted that option. But that's important. It means that in the future, hopefully, particularly with our newspaper clients, the comments underneath websites, if people are disgruntled, we can say, well, it wasn't us, we'll delete it, but you must sue the person who wrote it, and these are the, this is the identifying information we have about this person. And then the second thing that he said, which was very important, was that those who make postings about others on, the, on social media would be well advised to remove such postings immediately upon the request of an offended party. It will seldom be worth contesting one's obligation to do so. After all, the social media is about building friendships around the world rather than offending fellow human beings. Affirming bonds of affinity is what being social is all about. So I think he probably attaches too much to the idea that um, Facebook is used solely for social purposes. It sort of negates um, any possibility of a truth in public interest defense, which is the usual defense to a defamation. Because he said that, yes, it may be true, but there's no public interest to the comment. And it may be interesting to the public, but no public interest in telling everybody that this guy was um, bending. Okay, then personal liability for content on social media. Um, I've just got a few examples there. The first is the, the Cairns versus Modi case. So Christopher Cairns is a cricketer. He plays cricket for New Zealand. And he played on the test side, the one-day one side. Lalit Modi is the guy who started the Indian Premier League. And he tweeted that Chris Cairns had been removed from the IPL auction list because of his history of involvement in match-fixing, which upset Chris Cairns greatly. And he instituted defamation action in London. Even though Chris was based in New Zealand, uh, Modi was based in India. He had, at the time, I mean, this is a few years ago, so it was really just a very new phenomenon. He had probably um, 400,000 followers in India, but they were able to prove that he had 60 followers in England. And on the basis of this, instituted action, he was awarded 90,000 pounds in defamation, plus costs, which make the, 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 the damages portion look really minimal. So that was really, really interesting. It was the first sort of defamation Twitter trial around the world, and it was a huge damages claim. Um, then Chet Evans was a footballer who, I say was because he's now in jail, he used to play for Wales, and he was convicted of raping a girl and sentenced to five years in prison. So a few of his fans thought that this was absolutely um, 
abhorrent because he'd been on a date with this girl and they'd been to a nightclub and by all accounts been getting on very well and then she'd gone home with him and then she had, as much as I hate this expression, cried rape. And um, obviously it was untrue because he'd been convicted of rape, but in England, victims of rape have a lifelong right to anonymity. And somebody found out who it was, named the girl on Twitter, retweeted by various people. Every single person who retweeted it was arrested. Also very interesting. It's just it's more sort of, you know, I think you've got the picture now that you're accountable for what you say, but they are interesting cases. Liam Stacey was, I felt really sorry for this guy. He's a young guy, um, and he was studying... I think he was even studying actuarial science. He was studying at Bristol University. And he went out and he um, had a major razzle. It was a Saturday, drinking in a pub, watching soccer and rugby and then more soccer. And that night, Fabrice Mwamba had the heart attack. And he tweeted a racist comment about Fabrice Mwamba. He was arrested the next day, sentenced to 56 days in prison, rest of the year out of university, huge trouble. Paul Chambers is the most famous case. It was the Twitter bomb trial. So he tweeted that it was a period of horrible weather in England. And he tweeted, if Robin Hood Airport doesn't open by Wednesday, I'm blowing it sky high, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, WTF, I think. And uh, they arrested him under the Terrorism Act and convicted him. And he lost his job. And he was fined. He appealed it. He lost again. And it was so clearly a joke. And at that stage, various high-profile people got on board and paid for his, um, his, his uh, legal team. And it was taken all the way to the Supreme Court in, in London. Stephen Fry actually landed up paying for uh, Stephen Fry and Al Murray. Paid for most of the legal costs. But it's that kind of thing that, you know, a reminder that what's a joke to you and me isn't necessarily a joke to everybody else. Yeah. Do you get, like you get ambulance chases, do you get cyber chases, people looking for so I can't think anyone else would just sue Are there people looking to make money out of suing people for what they put on the internet? Well, in South Africa, law, firstly, it's so slow and it's so expensive that you have to really be involved in massive claims for it to be worthwhile. And the only claims, really, which are worthwhile on a contingency basis in South Africa are claims uh, paid out by the RAF, which is why we call them ambulance chases. In defamation law in South Africa, the highest ever awarded sum was 200,000 rand, and that was to Robert McBride, and that was for a series of seven front-page articles in The Citizen calling him Bomber McBride. So very serious allegations, a series of events. In general terms, I'd say if you were the victim of a horribly defamatory tweet, you'd probably get 40,000 rand in court. To get to that point, you'd have to spend a hell of a lot more. Um, so it's often best to handle these things sort of via a PR way. I think approaching court on an urgent basis to get uh, Facebook pages removed is probably worthwhile, but certainly not, um, certainly it's, there's certainly no money to be made from it as a, as a victim. You'd have to spend a lot of money protecting so your reputation. You can, you can sue the wrongdoer for, for the other damages that he's caused you if you have a lot of earnings or anything. In order to show loss of earnings in South Africa, and we slightly beyond the scope of this presentation, but you have to show malice. And often that's a very difficult um, bar to meet. Because of the risk of stifling freedom of expression, and bearing in mind there can be huge uh, reputational harm, which leads to huge patrimonial harm. Um, I'm thinking now of the carte blanche case, where carte blanche broadcast a story about the Goldrie City and how you were taking your life into your own hands when you got on the rides in the theme park. And they said in that case that 
they had found that their financial performance had decreased dramatically as a result of the show because people weren't arriving, dropping off their kids to play on the amusement park, at the amusement park and then going to the casino and gambling because the, the rides were unsafe. So they claimed 46 million rand. If you've got a case where the media is having to fork out that kind of money, I mean, we know how badly the media is doing already in South Africa, you'd shut them all down. So it's a very hard bar to meet in South Africa to get special damages, general damages only. Yeah, any other questions on the other stuff? There's more to come of the same ilk, but p personal versus professional is very interesting. So. Um, I suppose this is really the, the issue that I deal with, uh, that, that, that affects me probably most personally, is that it's very difficult to work out where the personal and professional boundaries lie. I sort of straddle the line. I tweet a little bit of personal stuff. I tweet a little bit of professional stuff. There's no specific link to Weber Wenzel on my Twitter profile. My boss takes a different approach. He said he's all at Weber Wenzel. You know, he is partner at Weber Wenzel. This is uses his official uh, work photograph. His bio is all Weber, linked to his Weber Wenzel website as a profile on, on the Weber Wenzel website. I like to have a little bit more freedom, so I don't, but that I suppose is the most difficult thing. And it's also difficult if you are an employer and you're employing people and trying to sort of control about what your staff are saying. I think that we've, we've already discussed the same professional ethical obligations apply to your conduct in online and offline environments. That's to say that my code of conduct, which applies in the workplace, would apply to my conduct online. But I think that what I tweet on a Saturday about the football shouldn't necessarily be you know, uh, is always under the auspices of my employee, employer. But you see these people who say in their bios, I tweet in my personal capacity. I don't believe that you have personal capacity on Twitter. As much as you can try and sort of distance yourself from your employer, as soon as you can be associated, and let me tell you, if I say anything that would bring Weber Wenzel into disrepute, I'd, my, my, I'd be out of there. Like, it's not even a question. And that's just because if you Google my name, it's very easy to see that I work at Weber Wenzel. You have people like Macintosh Palella, who we'll speak about in a second, saying, I tweet in my personal capacity, but he's the spokesperson of the Hawks. How can you ever extricate himself? He, whatever he says is under the auspices of the Hawks. Michael Jordan is FNB. So, so it's a very difficult line to draw. The CCMA cases have been absolutely consistent. Uh, I mean, I don't think kind of official aspects as well, but I mean, obviously you also, if anyone looks you up, you also, people will know you're an actuary. I mean, I mean yeah. my, my Twitter profile, I'd say I'm an actuary anyway. Yeah. So presumably anything that I tweet, I'm, I'm held to professional standards. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I tweet about Beach Boys and um, cricket and stuff like that, yeah. which I think is fine. But yeah. obviously I'm, you know, I can't say something which... Exactly. And I w I, I've got a little slide in here about the actuary's code, which and it, it says whenever you can be identified as an actuary, the code applies to you. So yes, I mean, you can never, you can never ex like completely dissociate yourself from the profession. I can never dissociate myself from my employer. Unless I, uh, I tweeted under a pseudonym and there was no other identifying information and not a single person in the whole world knew who I was. Um, well, if they found out who I was, then I'd be fired, so. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so the CCMA case has been absolutely consistent. They've all said exactly the same thing, and that is that it's trite that you owe that employee owns, owes the employer a duty of good faith. That duty extends online. If you mess it up, you will be fired. And it doesn't have to be directly bringing your employer into dispute. I mean, you don't have to directly say something horrible about your employer, about your boss, about your company that you work for. It can just be, it can be anything. I mean, I could tweet something racist and that would be bringing my employer into dispute. Um, take you through a couple of examples. The Cedric versus Chris Ray is the CCMA case, which, which first really confirmed that um, anything said on social media can be 
uh, a fireable offence. Two employees were dismissed after being found guilty of, being, uh, of bringing their employer and fellow employees into disrepute. And there they hadn't actually directly mentioned the company. But what the, the, the commissioner found was that there was a real potential for damage to the company's reputation amongst customers, suppliers, and competitors. So if I tweet something which would upset one of Weboensel's biggest clients, then it would be a difficult thing because I would probably be bringing my company into disrepute by association. So it really is. And if you think that Weboensel is a massive, massive company and we have you know, these huge clients, and often we'll get emails from our senior partner saying, nobody's to mention this client in the media. If I then tweeted something about them, you know, and it's, it's often this stuff that affects us on our day-to-day -day basis, on a sort of a daily basis, then I would be uh, contravening that, that direction and I'd be in trouble. So, so that's interesting. So it's not just the company's reputation, but anything that brings up um, the company's reputation amongst customers, suppliers, and competitors. Into the well, what, what, did, what did they do? They had been talking to each other on Facebook, but in a public way, not sort of private messages, and just being saying terrible things, not about the company. I think there was one other employee that they'd been talking about, but just the language that they'd been using and... It's one of many cases. The, the CCMA has probably found, uh, it's probably two or three times a month people are being fired via the CCMA um, for social media. So, yeah. on that topic, yeah. to what extent as a person do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy? So, if, if you're on Facebook and you've sent a, a personal message, so yeah. in theory, it's only going direct to yeah. one other person. If that next person forwards it to someone else, yeah. can I be held liable for what I've seen? It probably could be. It depends, it depends on the facts. You probably could be, but then you'd have a privacy claim against the person who forwarded, on, forwarded it on. So in South Africa, you have a right to privacy under the Constitution. Section 14 of the Constitution says that every person has a right to privacy, and then there are all these subcategories. And then the last subcategory is, which includes the right not to have the privacy of their communications infringed. It's a constitutional right, but it's not absolute. And there's no statute telling us what privacy is. The common law says it's a two-stage inquiry. The first is you have to show that in those circumstances, you had a reasonable expectation of privacy. If I put something out onto a public forum, I can't with a straight face say that I had a reasonable expectation of privacy over that content. If I tweet a picture of you guys sitting here, I can't have privacy over it. If I uploaded it onto Facebook and I had um, the highest privacy control settings, I didn't tag anyone, and um, I had 20 friends on Facebook, I'd have a greater expectation of privacy. So it's a sort of a balancing test. Then if you can sh show that in those circumstances you had the right to privacy, then you have to show either that, the, well, you have to show there's a defense. And the two defenses that we use are either consent. Um, so I was teaching to some schools yesterday and we said, just get the consent from the parents up front, general consent that we can monitor them at all times, or truth and public interest. Um, so, so it's, a, it's a tricky one and it has to be decided each time. But obviously, if I WhatsApp somebody, just one other person, I have an expectation of privacy over that communication. If I tweet something, I don't. It's really just this balancing exercise. So, um, what's yeah. the definition that you use uh, for uh, public interest? Because that's a topic that we discuss quite often in our professionalism yeah. committees and so on. So, yeah. uh, it's, it's, I'm thinking of the American judge who said... Uh, he was asked to define pornography and he said, I know it when I see it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things. We, we always claim there's public interest in everything because I always act for the media and we always say there's a manifest public interest, you know. Um, usually, the, the, the sort of the traditional cases are that 
a divorce, for example, wouldn't be in the public interest. That's a private matter. But when Tokyo Sakwali is getting divorced and there are allegations of physical, emotional, verbal abuse against him, and it seems to be, you know, that there are a lot of people who know that he's been beating up for years, there's manifest public interest in that. So it's really just an analysis that you have to take, you have, you have at the time. It's not, uh, I think the one judge described it as uh, a public interest is distinct from not what's interesting to the public, especially the gossip mongering board Afrikaans community in Pretoria. <laughs> it was about a, 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 a or something. So it's really just that analysis. There are various definitions given to, by judges over the years, but they're always specific to the, the, the set of facts in that case. So in South Africa, anything to do with corruption, anything to do with the public purse, I'd say is public interest. Um, hypocrisy is public interest. So if you can show that Joost um, van der Westerhaisen was involved in drug taking and he's always held himself out as this totally clean, you know, uh, role model, sports role model, then that's fine. The judge in England, in the Naomi Campbell, they took a picture of her she's coming out of a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And that wouldn't be in the public interest. That's a private thing that she's, drug she's battling with drug addiction. Except she'd gone on record so many times saying, I've never taken a drug in my life. <laughs> so then there's public interest to show hypocrisy of a public figure. So it's really a very difficult question to answer, but we have quite a lot of guidance from the court about what would be acceptable. For us, like, actually designing insurance products and giving advice to clients and so on, that, then public interest probably comes into play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would... Would also, of course, depend on what, but yeah, it could certainly, certainly be public interest. Um, okay, then just a couple of fun examples. So this is the front page of the system a little while ago. Here you'll see a dead body and a dead body, and then this is the pictures of the function on the front page. And they photoshopped the bodies out. And Johan Hutting, who was working for the citizen at the time, tweeted this hashtag citizen clone, so anybody following the story would be able to see it, even if they weren't following him. Cloning dead out of pick, unethical, 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 pictures editor complained, senior editor staff was okay with it, what the fuck. He was fired, fairly obviously, on the spot. <laughs> and when I teach the journalists and I show them this, they, oh, outraged, they were like, but, but he, he, was, he was making comment, but I say, it's against the employer. If I took to Facebook or Twitter to air my grievances before exhausting the internal channels, I'd be in huge trouble too. So the citizen released a response saying that um, bringing the company name into disrepute by making defamatory comments on Twitter, irretrievably damaging the trust relationship between employer and employee, sounds like a divorce. Um, and then the, they said in their statement, if you are in an employer-employee relationship, not just Facebook, but blogging, you have to remember to always act in the employer's best interest. That is common law compulsion. Macintosh Palela, um, spokesperson for the Hawks, arguably synonymous. Uh, the name Macintosh Palela with the Hawks, my fellow alumni from LSE, bringing us into disrepute. He said, tweeted this, Job Job spending first night in prison. Bail has been denied after being found guilty of murder, attempted murder and racing while high. Next tweet, seconds later, I trust that Job Job supporters gave him a jar of Vaseline to take to prison. Talking about the very justice system of which he is an officer. Horrific. Suspended. Probably will be suspended on full pay for a very long time, like all good government officials. But I don't know if he'll get his job back. Um, I don't believe he's had his disciplinary hearing yet, but he's still suspended, and this was in November last year. And then something that affects the Cape Town lot, Lance Witten is a sports anchor on E! News. It was when the Lincoln Park concert happened and there was those awful winds and that billboard fell over. He tweeted, Lincoln Park is so badass, people are dying to see them, just after this woman had been killed. And... He defended it all night. This was about 9 o'clock at night. Defended it all night. The next morning he realized how much trouble he was in. Deleted it and apologized. Um, 
And he actually got reinstated. He was suspended, went through a disciplinary process and was reinstated. But this is just an example of how you can be so associated with your employer that you're by I make TV happen, this is at the time. This is tweeted out to follow us, but I make TV happen at, at ENCA News. And then finally, I've just got a slide here on the actuaries code, which I'm sure you all know about intimately. I've just tried to highlight there a couple of things that may apply. So as I said earlier, the code applies at all times to members' conduct and their work as actuaries, but it will also be taken into consideration where their conduct in other contexts could reasonably be considered to reflect on the profession. So as I said, it's very difficult to dissociate yourself with the profession. I would say in all your interactions on social media, um, the code would apply. Just some things I've highlighted there. Members will act honestly and with the highest standards of integrity, show respect for others in the way they conduct themselves in their professional lives, respect confidentiality unless disclosure is permitted by law. Members will be honest, open, and truthful. And then uh, the notification requirement. Members will take such steps as are sufficient and available to them to ensure that any, communica any communication with which they are associated is accurate and not misleading and contains sufficient information to enable that subject matter to be put into proper context. Fairly obvious stuff. And then finally, my suggestions. Um, I think that all corporates should have a social media code of conduct. I think that it's really important, and I, you have to accept that we're not dealing with the sort of average level of intellect in this room. People are always so surprised when I tell them about this. I mean, I think it's probably fairly obvious to most of you, but um, when I go out to corporates and I start explaining this, people are horrified. People just have absolutely no idea. So I'm a huge advocate of rolling out educational programs within organizations, particularly big corporates, where there is a real risk for reputational harm. And also not just reputational harm, you know, monetary harm. If I, I look at our CAs and they're involved in massive transactions, which are confidential, which they should know are confidential, but they could slip up pretty easily and say, oh, it's so exciting, I just met this person working on this deal. And then that's out there and it can cost billions of rand and it's a, it, it can be a huge problem. So um, thank goodness for professional indemnity insurance. And um, so the billboard test, as I mentioned earlier, I think if you don't have a specific social media um, policy, I would certainly have a specific re reference in your code of conduct to say this code of conduct applies to your conduct when you are recognizable as an employee and to your conduct online. And most importantly, don't be stupid. I think that's really the thrust of what I have to say. Um, are there any questions? Yeah. Thinking about the, the citizen case, if, if you have an obligation to be a whistleblower, yeah. so we, we have a whistleblowing policy in, a, in our profession, mm -hmm. um, could, could you count what, what the journalist did there as, as was whistleblowing? No, because there are mechanisms for blowing the whistle. You know, as soon as there's a procedure, at, I mean, at best, it can be an absolute last resource if you've exhausted the internal mechanisms, gone to the public protector, you can take to Twitter. But, but as you say, something that happened a year ago, yeah. no one's going to give a damn a year down the line that the newspaper did something dodgy. But in the, in the heat of the moment, people would actually be very interested. In that. What, do you, what do you mean? So, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to throw your words back. Yeah. <laughs> So in, in the, the, the case, what was it, H versus W, yeah. and it's like, okay, well, we'll get Facebook to, to block the content, we'll, yeah. we'll tell you to block the content, yeah. but people have been reading that the guy was, was noxious for a year. Yeah. To now not have that content available is not going to help him one jot. Well, I mean, uh, there, there are even arguments that the whole concept of even trying to have a privacy law in the digital age 
is pointless. That once it's out there, you can't put it back in the sort of, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So in, in the citizens case, yes. if they come down in a year's time because the guys followed due process and yeah. he's whistleblown and the National Editors Forum have gotten involved, the, the citizen on page four, yeah. they say that in the interest of the sensitivity of our readers, we decided to Photoshop some dead bodies out because we know people are squeamish. I think the citizen even accepted the day after that the decision they'd taken was wrong. They should never have done that. It wasn't journalistically sound. But the problem remains, you can't, you can't be talking like that about your employer online. You've got to, you, it's, it's airing the dirty laundry. You must at least raise your grievances to the, to, to the person you report to. Before you... Never, never was a I mean, that's, I mean, even the whistleblowing guidelines say that's not the way it's done in private. I would agree. I think point that you make if you do the Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm glad it's catching on. <laughs> you, you, put, you put that out on the main, on, on the main road into, into Cape Town and something that you've got to complain about. And if you happen to be slightly wrong in what you've, what you've stated, you're in yeah. bigger trouble than if you follow the right channels to release it. Definitely. Yeah. So don't you just have a lot of people say, you know, my profile has been hacked, it wasn't me. But you wonder, <laughs> how can you prove that... Uh, yeah, you can. I mean, it certainly, it certainly would be a defense. You'd have to try and show that, that it is true, um, that you were hacked. I, I, I follow some digital marketers, and some of them were saying this morning that, because I don't know if you followed, but the McDonald's Twitter handle was hacked two days ago. And it was hacked by... Sorry? Yeah, sorry, it was the Burger King. Was it Burger King that was hacked by McDonald's, or the other way around? Well, well anyway, so it, well, you're right. It was the Burger King Twitter handle. And then they changed the cover picture to uh, all these pictures of McDonald's. And the main picture was the Golden Arches, but it was the Ad Burger King. And they got um, millions of followers overnight because it garnered such attention that this, this hacking. And then they said, oh, it was a hack. And go back. And they said, well, actually, we should do this as a marketing strategy. We should just hack into accounts because look how effective it's been. But we've got so all these new followers. Um, but there, there were no real legal implications. It was just a reputational thing. But uh, Twitter is... It's just the most unbelievable way to get information out there immediately. So like the Outsurance, I don't know if you saw it yesterday, but Outsurance had an advert on the front page of the Star, and there was this massive picture of Oscar and um, headline about uh, Reva's uh, last breaths, and then a picture of a person on the Outsurance ad with no leg, and they'd write, written the thing about disability cover in the, in the where the leg should be. <laughs> yeah, how your life can change in a second or something. So um, they immediately took to Twitter and, and said, you know, that was totally unintentional. The campaign was approved months ago. We had no idea that it was going to be run, whatever. Nando's last week when they, when, uh, they were all those fake Nando's uh, images going around, uh, fake Nando's adverts. There was the one in particular, this Oscar Pistorius one, which said that we don't shoot our, our birds, we flame grill them. That had never come from Nando's. So immediately they take to, to the Twitter account and say it was fake. Definitely wasn't us dissociate totally. When the Kez boys were struck by lightning last week, the, Ke the school has a Twitter handle, immediately tweeted updates to the parents. And it's just a way of getting information to the parents so quickly and um, effectively. So it's really just not something that can be avoided. It's taking over. And I find it particularly useful for me to follow court cases. So I can be effectively in two places at once. You no longer have to sit and watch in briefs anymore. You just have to find out what has hashtags all the journalists are using. And it's almost as good as having a contemporaneous transcript of court proceedings. It's extraordinary. I, I, I would say for somebody with nothing to lose, it 
most fantastic weapon against anybody. Yeah, it is. Which is why you see these horrible anonymous trolls. But I don't believe that people can be anonymous on the internet. I mean, in the smallest percentage of cases, you can't find out who somebody is. Yeah, no, I'm not even saying that yeah. somebody would want to be anonymous. If you, yeah. if you think that a, a major atrocity yeah. uh, had been committed, yeah. uh, like in America when they tortured people who were clearly innocent uh, at some stage, you, um, the ordinary citizen are virtually helpless under their laws. Mm. And uh, but this would be a way to do something. Yeah, gives everyone a voice. Before, if you wanted something published, you probably have to write a letter to the editor. You know, they'd have to look at it, think about it, publish it. Now everybody has a voice. Everybody, there's no, anybody with an internet, um, an internet connection and a computer has a very public forum on which to get information out there. Should we go there? Those companies that have tried to support that dissociated themselves from the apparent mistake or... I mean, how do we know it's true? How do you know that they didn't put it there to create the tension and then just say, oh, it wasn't us, it wasn't us? Yeah, I, we didn't know and... It's tricky. I mean, I know Fernandez because I act Fernandez in their social media stuff and they definitely didn't do it and they have a huge problem and we've, we've got these people who actually think they, they spend all their time making fake Nando's adverts. We've got no idea why and we're thinking about bringing in an interdict. If we could just find the bastards, then we'd, we'd stop them. But, you know, the risk for reputational harm, some of them, and also with brands like Nando's, because they are so often so risky, it's a very fine line that, that we have to straddle. So, so when something like this comes out, they, the possibility does exist that it was a genuine ad. And also people have become so good at it, the font is not particularly hard to copy. You, you, you can never really show it. I suppose if you have normal advertising campaigns, the, um, there's a paper trail. You can show that it was submitted and, the, and you can show that none of that happened in the case of fake, fake profiles. But, you know, the idea that all good publicity is good publicity, which my father used to tell me, when I was little, if I was complained that I was being, somebody was talking about me and he'd say that Oscar Wilde said that the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. <laughs> Nine-year-old girl probably didn't go down that well, but um, he, uh, it's not so true anymore because the, 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 the risk for reputational harm is so great. Um, and also, I mean, the converse, you can also, you can also rectify it quite quickly and try and mitigate quite quickly. But, uh, these brands don't necessarily want to compromise their reputation. People are really becoming very, very um, litigious about protecting their reputations, making sure that their employees know that there are boundaries. And be because, for example, the Macintosh Palella thing just brings the whole organization into disrepute in a, in a heartbeat. Yeah, there was another question there. What obligation is there on ISPs to release information if someone's trying to be anonymous? very good question. So whenever I do those Section 77 notices, I insist that they give us any identifying information that they have. And you can normally find the, the person via that information. Normally, they can only give you an IP address. That's, that's information they do hold. Sometimes, like the Hello Peter and the, the um, commenting on websites, they take some identifying information. They normally make sure that you set up an account and uh, send you an email, and then you have to verify the email. That's not to say that you didn't create that email account two minutes prior, or that you're sitting in an internet cafe that doesn't have a CCTV camera, because that's really the only time that you can't find a person. Often the IP address, the simple IP address is so, is so uh, telling because, you know, it'll be, I had one recently where 
this woman had been defamed and they gave us the IP address. And the only thing we could, or the only way we could narrow it down without getting the real experts involved was to say that it was somebody at Clicks in Cape Town. And we just mentioned that to this person who was based in London and she sort of went white and said, I know exactly who it is. And then we got an Anton Pillar and raided and we could show that it was this person who had created the content. Sorry? Are they allowed to just yeah. They are. Well, because they don't want to be sued themselves. <laughs> so, and, and if there's unlawful content. Sorry? But if it's a case of child, say if somebody put child pornography up there, that's illegal content. They're hosting it. So you can certainly get subpoenas. You can get subpoenas and get them to give you any identifying information. In the case of unlawful content, you know, the ISP is going to comply because they don't want to. If it's a defamation case, the traditional defenses to defamation are truth and public interest. Now, if I didn't create that content, then I just sure as hell don't know the truth about I don't, I don't know about the truth of it. So unless they comply with you and give you any identifying information that they have, um, then, then they're in big trouble because then you have to sue them. The other thing is that there's this Protection of Harassment Act, which was signed into law about a year ago, just over a year ago, and we all thought that Zimmer was going to announce it in the State of the Nation address as being effective last week, but he hasn't. But it's going to be implemented the next couple of weeks. Under that, if somebody's harassing you, for example, like trolling or cyberstalking or, or cyberbullying, you can go and get a protection order against no one. And then the any enabler, any sort of ISP or any... Um, it's quite broadly defined about who it is, but anybody who may have any identifying information has to hand that over. And also get court orders. I mean, I mean, I get case numbers at the police station. Okay, and then you don't just send them a mail and say, hey, please, can you give us the updates for this because we don't like it. You have to get a specific court order or something that's... No, they, they do give up the IP addresses pretty quickly. Because this is what the... I mean, even Judge Willis says, your recourse is against the wrongdoer. And... We yeah, can't use the judge if the person is a wrongdoer. That's the, that's the well, sometimes it's, it's obvious. Sometimes it's really, really obvious. The black and the white? No. Fine. What about the grey stuff in the middle? There's so much grey stuff. Exactly. So yeah. who's making that decision? To hand over my information to you because you say it's wrong. I might not think it's wrong. Well, then you can defend it. There's no right to anonymity on the internet. When I go online, I must never, ever think I'm anonymous. That is where all the problem starts, I think. This idea that you're anonymous. The IP address, it's often not sufficiently, ident uh, uh, it won't identify you sufficiently. It'll sort of narrow it down. It'll say this person's in Cape Town or this person's in Durban or sometimes narrow it down to a corporation because every time you log on, you get a new IP address. Um, yeah, you can, you can compel them to hand over any identifying information they may have, any pseudonyms they may have used, any email addresses, IP addresses. Yeah. Never think you're anonymous. <laughs> Big Brother's watching you. So it's not about that, it's about my privacy. Like someone just, someone might want information about me, so they just make up some, oh, she put something defamatory about me and get my information. I mean, it's not, you know, why must I not go and, um, yeah. Oh, I, so yeah. you would have to go and say this content no, we would say it's unlawful. We say this is unlawful. We need to take course legal action against that person. We need that. Well, we're going to prove it in court. You know, we're going to prove it in court. We're not doing it for practice. We're not. But, but again, it's about it's about specific content. So yeah. you wouldn't say we we think Nadine is doing something dodgy. So can you tell us about Nadine? Mm -hmm. It would be someone has posted. What you say is that ISP just hands over the They don't go and check and say. No, they certainly check. They certainly check. Oh yeah, 
yeah. So they immediately send you a thing saying, we've received it, we're looking at it. And then they'll look at it and they, if they think it's not defamatory, then they'll say, no, we're not. But then as soon as they take that decision, no, then they're responsible for it. So they have to, they have to be confident that at that stage, it's sufficiently vanilla that no legal action will be taken, that it's just bluster that, that, uh, the lawyers are creating or that, uh, it's so sufficiently in the public domain that, uh, they could defend it. Anything else? Okay. Well, I hope that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.